Amen. Well, if you're just joining us this weekend, we are continuing on in this series called, in the Sermon on the Mount that we're calling Apprenticing the Way of Jesus. And what we've been suggesting to you throughout this entire sermon series is that uh, the Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus' depiction of what it looks like to live in light of this beautiful mystery that he calls the kingdom of heaven. Something so central and fundamental that it literally changes every part of how we thought the world works. And the invitation that we have as followers of Jesus is to radically realign our lives around uh, what he's revealing to us and telling us about what this kingdom is really like. You know, we started a few weeks ago by looking in the Beatitudes. We've been suggesting you that the Beatitudes are these kinds of perspective recalibrators, a radically different lens that we look at life through. Uh, last week, Justin McCoy came and he, he shared with you this, this hinge between those Beatitudes in the section that we launch in today, this recognition that it's the people of God. We're called to be a city on a hill and a light in the darkness. And now in these verses, Jesus is going to bring us back to what obedience and life and holiness in the kingdom were always designed to be. In fact, here's what I want to suggest to you is the key idea of our message today. And it's, it's simply this, that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is bringing the law back to its original or ultimate purpose, the inside-out transformation of God's people. And we'll dive into that phrase as we move along. But I want to begin by just kind of doing a, a step back and looking at a and an overview of what the law was always designed to be throughout Scripture, what I'm calling a brief trip to law school. You know, Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what exactly is Jesus talking about here when he talks about the law? Uh, he says that he hasn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. It's actually two words in the Hebrew, the Torah, or you might have heard it described as the Torah, and then Nava'im which means the prophets. Together in the law and the prophets, you will find 248 commands and 365 prohibitions to that law for a total of 613 commands. Add to that, in the Old Testament world, what the Pharisees did in order to protect people from breaking those 613 is they came up with laws upon laws that they would build as a fence because the fear was if the people lived in unholiness or didn't fulfill the law, they would be exiled again. And all, of, all the while, this fear began to grow amongst the Pharisees and amongst the people of Israel, and they began to think that what God desired from the beginning was to create the law as a way to create a distance between the people. And the tragedy is that when they came to that place, they missed everything that the Old Testament law was really all about. And so when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, I think a very logical question we have to answer is, what was the law's original intent? It's interesting. If you go all the way back into the book of Exodus at the giving of the law, we know the story of the Ten Commandments, but just before it, in Exodus chapter 19, you have this beautiful description of, what, of God telling the nation of Israel of why he's giving them the law. Uh, you find this in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 to 6, and here's what we're told. Thus, you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, 
If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then I will make of you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you are to speak to the people of Israel. Do you see what Jesus is telling us there about his motive and intent? That he's saying that all the way back, even at the first giving of the law, God's intent was not to create a barrier that kept people from engaging with himself, but rather his intent was to create a way to restore relationship with himself. In fact, I would even go so far to say this, that when we ask the question, what was the law's original intent? The law was designed to show us what a right relationship would look like if we could keep it in our own power. The law was designed uh, to tell us something about who God is in his perfect holiness and righteousness. If we could keep the law in our own power, it would be a way for us to understand what God is like. You know, sometimes I hear people say things like, you know, when it comes to God's interaction with humanity, God can't stand to be in the presence of sin. And friends, while I appreciate the sentiment behind that, can I say that's backwards? If God couldn't stand to be in the presence of sin, then the incarnation could never have happened. It's actually the opposite. It's that we can't stand to be in the presence of a holy God. I mean, I think about the picture of Moses as he asked to see the glory of God, as he asked to see God's face, and he's hidden in the cleft of the rock. And God tells him, no one can see my face and live. No one can see my unbridled glory and righteousness. Because of who we are is fallen and broken humanity. And the law was designed to paint a picture of what that right relationship would look like if we could keep it our own power. Is it any wonder then that Jesus says that whoever relaxes even the least of these laws, he'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Because this is a picture of what a right relationship with God looks like, if we could do it in our own power. And of course, therein comes the issue. We can't do it in our own power. And thus it points the need for a savior. You see, for Jesus to relax even the smallest bit of the law would would be to invite us into a relationship that is anything but the relationship that we're invited into with the holy, pure, righteous king of the ages. But the tragedy is that along the way, Israel substituted the obedience to the command with the relationship that the command was always supposed to invite us into. I think there's a beautiful picture of this. Actually, they're in the story of the giving of the law. I love this tapestry that I found online that depicts the day and the moment when God descended on Mount Sinai and through Moses, he gives the law, the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel. And it's really interesting because if you read this story, the reaction of the nation of Israel after the giving of the law is so telling. Let's look at that together. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the trumpet and the mountain smoking, by the way, can you imagine what that must have looked like? The people were afraid and they trembled and they stood afar off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. 
And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And the people stood afar off while Moses drew near to God. Whew. I mean, you kind of understand that response, right? They're, they're standing there at that mountain. It's, it's literally on fire. They see this picture of the holiness and the righteousness of God. And God says to the nation of Israel, go up to the mountain. And the people say, you've got to be kidding me. I ain't going anywhere, anywhere near that. And instead, what do they do? They tell Moses, you go up there. You go talk to God. You tell us what he says. And then you come back and tell us what it's all about. And you do, do you see the tragedy of what happens in Israel's response in that moment? Jeremiah 31, 33 tells us that God's design and purpose was always to write his law on the hearts of his people. But losing sight of God's heart and design for his nation, they sent another person up the mountain rather than receiving the invitation to go themselves. And friends, can I tell you, the more that I walk this journey of faith, the more that I realize we are so prone to that tendency to send another person up the mountain. You know? Send a pastor up the mountain. Let them talk to God and tell us what he has to say. Literally, people then spend thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars every year to go to conferences where a conference speaker can tell them what it's like on the mountain. Or literally thousands of books are written every year to tell us what a life of intimacy and close relationship with God is supposed to look like. And all the while, the invitation is the same to us as it was those thousands of years ago. To go up the mountain. To meet with God face to face. The command was never given to create a distance between us and God. It was designed to actually reconcile us if we could keep it in our own power, which we can't. And I wonder for each of us today, who do we send up the mountain rather than letting God write his law on our hearts? Can I tell you that even religious obedience and observation of the law, when rooted in fear, can be a way that we hold God at arm's length? that you can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons and miss everything that the law was about. And that's what was happening in Jesus' day, and it's why he brings them back to the center of what the law was really all about. And it's here that we're invited to see the numerous ways that Jesus is the embodiment and the fulfillment of the law. You see, one of the beautiful things about Jesus is he says, do not think, in verse 17, that I've come to abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. In fact, just a few verses earlier, Jesus tells us, don't think that I came to eliminate even the smallest dot or iota. In the Hebrew, it's, it's the yot and the tittle. It's, it, it's literally the I when you dot an I and the T slash when you cross a T. He's like, don't even think that I have come to eliminate the smallest mark of what the law and the prophets were about. No, I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
By the way, this word to fulfill in the Greek is one of my favorite. It, it's the word pleroma, and it means to fill a thing to overwhelming. Literally, what it would be used to describe is a hole that would be filled with a heap on top. Like it, Jesus is saying here, I didn't just come to bring us back to what the law was really all about. I came to not only bring you back to that place, but to fulfill it in its fullest measure. And I want to suggest to you that here in this passage, we find four primary ways that Jesus comes to fulfill the law. Number one, Jesus confirms it. Jesus in no way says, eh, eh, the, the law, it just doesn't matter anymore. Can I tell you, it's one of the reasons why I love that as a church, in our dedication to expository teaching, we don't just teach on the New Testament, but on the Old we recognize that there is a richness and a depth in God's word, not just in the new covenant, but even in that which he expressed to the nation of Israel that reveals something about the character and the goodness of God. And I pray and I know that we will continue to do that in the years to come. A second thing that I think is a picture of how Jesus fulfills the law is that Jesus embodies the law. Again, remember that the purpose of the law was always to reconcile humanity with God, except for it was weakened according to the flesh, according to Romans chapter 8. And what happens is that when Jesus comes, he reconciles us, not, not calling us back to the dead and wrote command, but inviting us to receive his perfect obedience and submission to the Father through an act of grace. Here's a third reason that I think Jesus expands the law. He broadens the law. I love this. We're about to launch into one of the most thought-provoking sections, I think, in Scripture. Again, Jesus is going to look at sections of the law, and he's going to say, actually, if you get at the relationship center of the law, the law is actually a lot bigger than you think. You know, people in Jesus' day were saying, look, I'm a good person. I've never killed anybody. But as we'll see next week, Jesus says, look, if you harbor hatred in your heart against your brother, it's the same breach in relationship that re results in violent murder against another person. Or we say things like, look, I'm a good person. I've never had an affair. Jesus says, well, wait a second. If you get back to the original intent and purpose of the law, if you look at another person with lustful intent, in your heart. It's the exact same thing. And what Jesus does is he keeps us from looking at the law simply as a simple expression of a command. But he brings us back to its ultimate fulfillment. That it's ultimately about inside-out transformation. Let me talk about what I mean there. Because when I say inside-out transformation, there's a belief that somehow if we just do the right thing, if we do all the right things on the outside, we somehow can transform ourselves on the inside. That was the attitude and the mark of the Pharisees that marked Jesus' day, that if they just kept all the law, then they'd be transformed. But here, Jesus is saying that's not how it works in the kingdom of heaven. The way you experience transformation is you meet with God on the mountain. You come and have a radical encounter with the God of the universe. He overwrites the DNA of the sin and flesh that dominated the human condition, and he makes us into a new creation. And it's here then that ultimately, I think the fourth way that Jesus fulfills the law is he brings us back to the law's ultimate purpose. 
And one of my favorite verses in Scripture are the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. You know, at the end of chapter 7, Paul looks at his condition. He laments the reality of what he sees as the brokenness within him. And he says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of sin and death? And then he says, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for Christ Jesus. And then in verse one, he launches into this beautiful statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for the one who is in Christ Jesus. And then skipping down into verse three, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and is an offering for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. All the law was designed to do was to point us to what a right relationship with God looked like if we could keep it in our own power. And we couldn't. It took Christ who came as that sacrifice for us to once and for all pay the full penalty of the law to satisfy uh, that design and purpose to restore us in right relationship with the Father. And now because of that, we are invited to walk in a newness of life, in a transformation that comes because of the presence and the life of the kingdom of heaven that's at work within us. Friends, can I tell you one of the ways that we sometimes don't walk up the mountain is we lose sight of who we are as the transformed people of God. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that stands before the Father advocating for you and I, drawing us into this intimate relationship with himself. That God in his rich love and mercy doesn't look at his people and say, oh my word, they did it again. But because of the righteousness of Christ, he sees his sons and daughters perfected in beauty and glory. I know you know that. If you've been around the church for a while. But do you know that? You know that? That God sees not all of our frailties, weaknesses, and shortcomings, but because of the resurrection of Christ, he sees in you a son and a daughter created for his glory. And it's here then that in this vision, in this beauty of bringing the law back to its original purpose, bringing the law back to its purpose to restore relationship, I think we're left with the question then, how do we respond to the law? Jesus gives us two verses to kind of point us in that direction. In verse 19, he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever teaches them and teaches others to do the same, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Can I suggest to you that the first thing that Jesus reminds us of is that as followers of Jesus, our call is not to eliminate the place of the Old Testament. Far from it, we are called to take the law very seriously. But to recognize that the law points us to an even greater reality 
the one who would be a great high priest, who would lay down his life for us that we might know his love, his power, and his grace. It's why I encourage you, sit in the pages of the Old Testament. I remember saying years ago, I hate Leviticus. Leviticus is so boring. But friends, when you read Leviticus through the lens of Christ, there is something so beautiful and glorious in that book that no other book in the Old Testament can really match. This beautiful picture of who God is and what he's all about. And the call that we have as followers of Jesus is to not say, well, now that Christ is risen, the law no longer applies to us. No, the law applies to us very much. It's just the purpose of the law has been fulfilled in Christ. And it's here then that I think Jesus ultimately points us to what many have recognized is the core theological center of the entire Sermon on the Mount. And it's found here in verse 20. For Jesus says, I tell you, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter in to the kingdom of heaven. Now I want you to think about those who stood around Jesus as he spoke those words on the mount. I mean, I picture the tax collector who says, wait a second, wait a second, these are the religious good guys. If, if, if these guys can't do it, who can? On the other hand, you have the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are like, oh yeah, we've, we've got this thing locked down. And Jesus is saying, you got to do more. I'd be furious. Come on, Jesus, you got to be kidding me. And in the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul will wrestle with, in great depth, these relationships between the old and the new covenant. If you've not done a study through the book of Galatians, it's a phenomenal book. But let me share uh, this piece with you from that book. Because it's there that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in this book to perform them. Jesus is saying, if you're going to look to good works, if you're going to look to the obedience of the law as a way to pursue that reconciled relationship with God, here's what you're going to find. The standard is that you keep it in every dimension, in every expression. And the trouble is, no human being can. Friends, I can tell you that there have been seasons in my journey where I've thought that following God has been all about keeping the right commands. You know, if I look good on the outside, if you know, I, I have more of a brownie point system and I do more good things than bad, then I'm good. Friends, that's not the invitation and the life that God calls us into. He's recognizing that this transformation that takes place in our heart has to be one that starts from the inside out. It's one that starts with relationship. And that from that relationship, our behavior begins to change. What marked the Pharisees was their conviction that God had created a law that was designed to keep them away from his holiness, or that they could be holy by their own religious performance. The conviction of the citizens of the kingdom is that there's nothing that I can do in my own power to earn this kind of relationship and grace. That's why I love saying to people who come into a church maybe after a while and say things like, eh, you'll never catch me in there. The walls will catch on fire. Even new buildings like this. And, and, and what I want to say in that moment is, 
Well, welcome to the club. Because if the standard of a right relationship with God is perfect religious performance, guess what? All of us fail the test. And so much of the journey of faith is coming back to the recognition that as followers of Jesus, our hope, our joy, our life come not out of our performance, but because of the faithful love of a God who is willing to go to the cross for you and I. You know, as we come to this section in the Sermon on the Mount, ultimately, I think the question that we're left with is, do we see this as a prize we earn or as a gift we receive? Maybe to put it a different way, I'd ask this question. Where today is Jesus inviting you to see himself as the sole source of a right relationship with him? You know, uh, we know, we would, we'll, we'll even make the theological statement, we know that salvation is by grace alone. But does that play itself out in our day-to-day life? In the moments that we feel like we failed dismally, can we really anchor our lives? I'm saved by the grace and the mercy of a God who loved me, knowing that I could never be right with him in his own power. Or do we say, eh, yeah, I know that, but just to hedge my bets, uh, let me work a little bit harder to show God that I'm really worthy of his grace. And friends, I think one of the greatest privileges that we have as the people of God is to hear the call to go up to the mountain. To the recognize that the same glory, holiness, and power that dwelled on that mountain on the Sinai Peninsula is alive in you right now. If your head isn't exploding right now, like I just, I, I, I sat this week just like, holy moly! But God, through his grace and his power, is inaugurating a new way of living by the presence of his spirit, not one that comes by simply keeping the right commands out of a spirit of fear, but to recognize that we have not received a spirit of fear leading to slavery again. But we have received a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind or self-discipline. Friends, as we close today, I've been haunted this week by that image of going up the mountain. Hearing the nation of Israel so scared of the presence of God that they lost sight of everything that he is. That he was beckoning them to come. And yet, they said, send up another in my place. Friends, my heart and my prayer for you as we as we close today is that you would find the freedom to go up the mountain. That you would find the freedom to hear the call of a God who gives the law not to keep you at arm's length, but because he wants to embrace you in his never-ending love. I invite the worship team to come on up. And as they do, just ask you, who are you sending up the mountain right now? Where's God inviting you into deeper intimacy and connection with him? 
and yet something else feels safer. Today, where does he invite you to see even your weakness as a recognition of his goodness, mercy, and life? And today, can we say, I need you? I need you. I know you're up the mountain, so let's go. Let's pray. Lord, I'm reminded that as Israel received your law on that mountain, they they were beckoned by a call that said, I want to make you my people, a holy priesthood unto my name, a holy nation that all the world might see the goodness of your grace and mercy. God, today, even as we come into this building, we stand at a different but a threshold nonetheless. And God, I find myself praying the same. May you make of this expression of Fellowship Nashville a people called by your name as you have. May you deepen our awareness of who we are as the redeemed people of God. That the whole city of Nashville may be stirred with the glory of your goodness, of your presence, and of your love. Lord, today, we don't want to just offer this building back to you. We want to offer our very hearts. Saturate us, bathe us, baptize us in your grace. That by your mercy and power and love, you would continue to be glorified. Lord, we thank you. We love you. In your name. Amen.